But we feel that God is calling us to be a holy church. A church that is uniquely set apart from the spirit of this age. And speaks of the brilliant character of Christ. God is teaching us how to build a holy church by giving us lessons through Moses, who was building a holy nation. Now, two weeks ago, I suggested to you that in order to build a holy church, we need to trust God and we need to trust each other. And when we came back from our little vacation in Cape Breton, I was given several reminders of how important trust is in that process of building something holy. I'm thankful that one of my brothers in Christ was willing to let me know that my sermon on trust had actually done the opposite for some in our congregation. Regretfully, in, in my effort to sort of forcefully make a point, I had unintentionally violated their trust by the words that I chose. I was alarmed and I was concerned. So I reached out to those two individuals to ask for forgiveness and to provide clarification. And I want you to know that if, if you too were violated or you too were hurt by the way I expressed myself two weeks ago, I want you to know that I'm truly sorry. I didn't mean to uh, hurt you in any way. My friend Julie says this often, things happen for a reason. <laughs> This experience, uh, I think, was kind of, for me, an unplanned, spontaneous pop quiz, maybe, on trust. You see, the individuals that I spoke with are highly committed to this church and people with whom I've enjoyed a good relationship over six years. We've socialized, we've studied God's word, we've prayed together, we've served together, We've talked about difficult things together. That is why I knew that I had to pick up the phone and address the issue that I had created. I trust them. And I knew that if they were concerned about what I had said, there must be a good reason. And because they trusted me, they were willing to freely express their concerns without any fear of us severing relationship or holding a grudge or anything like that. You see, that's what trust does. It builds. It doesn't take away. It doesn't tear down, it builds up. This church is going through a tremendous upheaval. But it's not a negative crisis. Rather, I believe with all my heart it is a time of sifting, a period in which God is refining and redefining our church. Although it's not been unhealthy and it hasn't been unproductive, it has been a time of reckoning, an opportunity for each one of us to decide whether we will be equally invested in this ministry or sidelined. During times of upheaval, emotions are raw. 
And we can be on edge trying to make sense of what God is doing. And I believe at one point in my sermon two weeks ago, my emotions got the better of me and my words were not gracious, but harsh. And that was wrong. And I want you to know I'm sorry. My intent, however, was not wrong. I believe with all my heart that we will only accomplish God's vision for New Glasgow Christian Church if we truly commit to God and to one another, to trust God and one another. So I want to be perfectly clear. As a rule, and this is a generality, I believe that we are still at just the very beginning stage of building trust. As we begin to discern God's vision for this church, we're going to have all kinds of opinions and preferences. Will we trust each other enough to have confidence in each other's relationship with Christ? Will we trust each other enough to accept each other's contributions to the discussion as coming from the right place? Not simply discounting people because you think their motivation is selfish or arrogant or ignorant or narrow-minded. Will we trust each other enough to give each person's contribution to the discussion serious and prayerful consideration? Will we trust the Holy Spirit to preside over the process? And when we are able to finally identify God's vision, will we trust each other enough? Will we trust God enough to wholeheartedly commit together to that vision? See, this is the degree of trust that's required to build something holy. And I think that we are definitely on the right path. I am so gratified and encouraged and blessed that we have embraced this call of God. Now, today's lesson is inseparable from that lesson a few weeks ago on trust. It's on obedience. You see, trust is an abstraction. Trust is an abstraction. It's, it's metaphysical. It's not physical. It's, it's intangible. It's conceptual. It is ethereal. It's, it, it is out there, but it's not something you can grab a hold of. It's all of those things until it's demonstrated by some proof of existence, right? <coughs> Trust is simply an abstraction until it's demonstrated in a concrete way. You see, I can say I trust you, but until I do something concrete to demonstrate my trust in you, I'm just blown off steam. Trust unproven is an abstraction, just as knowledge is an abstraction. When I was a teacher, I, I, keenly, uh, I was keenly aware of students 
avoidance and fear of testing. Okay, go figure. They don't like to be tested. And I remember them appealing to me, saying, Mr. Edwards, we know this stuff. We don't need a test. We know this stuff. And you know, quite frankly, not much that I taught really required proof of competency. <laughs> it wasn't all that important. But you know what? Some things require proof of competency. I can't simply accept that you know how to drive a car. <laughs> I can't simply accept that you know how to build a bridge. I can't simply accept that you know how to perform open heart surgery or accounting. See, without evidence, knowledge is an abstraction, just as trust is an abstraction. The other week, uh, before we went away to Cape Breton, Bo just went weird. That's our dog. And Bo just, just I don't know, he started vomiting and he started like quivering, shaking, like. It was really unnerving. So we called the Atlantic Veterinary College and they took us in. And I want, you, I want you to know that it was reassuring to know that the veterinarian who saw Bo had been vetted and had proven competency. It wouldn't have been reassuring to know that, hey, I'm Joe, I'm, I'm a dog lover. Let me see what your dog's doing. I've had a dog for a few years. That wouldn't have really cut it with me. I want to know. I want to know that, that there is competency. We just sang the classic hint, trust and obey. But if we ever put two and two together that realize, to realize that trust without obedience, trust without obedience is inconsequential. It's a pious platitude. <laughs> it's smoke in the air. It's nothing. Let's remember what we're doing. God is teaching us to build a holy church. God was showing Israel how to build a holy nation. So in order for God to continue with that purpose, he wanted Israel to prove its trust. Interesting, isn't it? And think about it. For Israel to enter a country that was inhabited by people who weren't just inclined to give up their homes, <laughs> their livelihoods, their farms, and who on top of that were seen as giants, in order for that to happen, God needed to know that these people trusted him. In order for them to be obedient, they would have to trust him. And so God gave them a test, a trust test, if you will, in obedience. If we are to build a truly set-apart church, a church, a holy church, we need to be able to demonstrate our trust in God in concrete terms through obedience. 
not simply spouting pious platitudes. We're not building a bridge here. <laughs> We're not fixing a sick dog. We're not working on somebody's heart or doing their taxes. What God has called this place to is far more important. Do you believe that? This church holds the key to eternal life or death. Do you understand that? What this church decides to do could have an eternal impact on people's lives. That's more important than a bridge. We all know if you live on Hunter River, they replace bridges. <laughs> and it's a pain. <laughs> but you don't replace lives that have been changed for eternity. In our text this morning, God deems it necessary to, to trust Israel's, uh, to test, I should say, Israel's trust by giving it an opportunity to demonstrate it. And I'm going to read from Exodus 16, 1 to 20. Exodus 16, 1 to 20, if you have your Bibles, um, I'd recommend you bring your Bibles. It would be helpful for you, I think. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat. Doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> but anyways, they sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. And he throws in this little point of clarification, which would be a great sermon, but I'm not gonna give a second sermon this morning. <laughs> Moses says, who are, you, who are we that you uh, should grumble against us? You know, like if you're grumbling against the leadership in the church, you're grumbling against God. So who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not, you're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. Think about that. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked forward or looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. 
While the Israelites sought, when they sought, they said to each other, what is this? For they did not, know, did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread of the Lord that he has given to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer from, uh, for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, and some gathered much and some little. They, they weren't really accurate in the, how they gathered their omers. Um, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. So it's, it's no big deal. <laughs> God, God was straightening out the quantities, right? The, the, the people that got too much, he made it an omer. The ones that didn't have uh, enough, he made it an omer. So they had an omer. I don't know what an omer is. <laughs> and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, what's new. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. The Lord said to Moses, in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. It's a test, it's test day, Israel. <laughs> in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The test wasn't whether or not they were gonna get fed. The test was whether or not they trusted God to feed them more than one day. They knew God was going to feed them one day. I don't know about that second day. So what did they do? Some of them? They rationed themselves. Right? Because it says that they all had an omer. So if you have an omer, <laughs> and, and you need some for tomorrow because you don't trust God's going to provide day two, you ration yourself in day one. You missed out on the, <laughs> you missed out on his provision because you didn't trust God. And that was the test. The record shows that in this instance, most of Israel did obey God and demonstrated their trust that he would feed them Day by day, they trusted him to do that. Sadly, it seems, sadly, it seems, because as far as I can tell, this is the first real test. God says the word test, I'm testing. Sadly, it seems that the ones who didn't trust, that seed grew in Israel, and grew in Israel. So that when they were faced with the final exam of trust, do you go into Canaan? Are you obedient and follow God's instructions and go into Canaan and take the land? They failed. They failed the test on trust. They were not obedient. I want to just do a little diversion here for what it's worth, and I think it's worth something. I'm not quite sure what it is. 
but it's worth something. I'm going to, I'm going to say it. How could this happen? I mean, we do. We shake our heads, right? We sort of say, how could Israel? I mean, after all of these incredible demonstrations, after seeing the manna and the quail on day two, and on day three, and on day four, how could they, when God says, trust me, go in and conquer, say, nah, not doing it. How could that happen? Have you ever heard of victim mentality? There's a lot of psychobabble out there. I understand that, but this is how I understand it. I found a little paragraph. I'll just read it to you. If you have a victim mentality, you will see your entire life through the perspective that things constantly happen to you. Victimization is thus a combination of seeing most things in life as negative, beyond your control, as something you should be given sympathy for, because you're experiencing it and you really deserve better. At its heart, a victim mentality is actually a way to avoid taking any responsibility for yourself or for your life. By believing you have no power, then you don't have to take action. I believe this is the mentality of that first generation. And you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because usually it's developed by having a traumatic experience where you were out of control and something terrible happened to you. And I can't, I can't describe the experience of Israel's slavery for hundreds of years any differently than that. A terrible thing happened to them. It wasn't their fault. And they were totally abused and they were tra traumatized. So they gave up hope. They accepted they were powerless to improve their situation. And they blamed others. Now, that's normal in slavery, but when God comes along and offers an incredible opportunity to break out and realize God's vision, I think the problem how that explains this is that they were so entrenched in their victimization to avail themselves of the opportunity. Every challenge, instead of being embraced and overcome, was just another opportunity to reinforce their dysfunctional belief. Their, their plight was sealed. Things would never get better. And they grumbled and they yearned to go back to those pots of meat. And so it's understandable that God would test his people to see if they've broken out of this victim mentality. Have they broken out of the victim mentality? Are they going to avail themselves of this incredible gift? Obviously, you don't want to invade a land of giants with a bunch of victims. It's not going to go well. Here's the good news. And I believe God's word for us today, right now, as we stand on the banks of the Jordan River, being told to go in 
and build a holy church. Not all of Israel accepted the victim mentality. Look at Joshua and Caleb's report to Israel upon their return from the spy mission into Canaan. We find it in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. See, they'd sent, they'd sent spies into Canaan to, to do sort of a, a forward-looking um, scouting mission and came back, and they came back with a report. And most of them gave a really negative report. And it said that night, all, and so the Israelites that night raised their voices and wept aloud. Verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly to them and said to them, if only we had died, there it is again, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us in this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That is victim mentality. Faced with an incredible opportunity, you just see it as a negative. Bad things are happening to us. It's not going to go well. This is going to be a disaster. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of all of Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly. Now listen to what they said. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. <laughs> what a stark contrast. <laughs> Things are terrible. It's getting worse. It's awful. The land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people in the land because we will devour them. These are giants. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So Joshua and Caleb pleaded with Israel to show their trust in God and to obey. Joshua and Caleb weren't like <coughs> clueless. They went in and saw the exact same things the other spies saw. They saw it. They saw the big guys. They saw it. They saw everything. But they came out with a totally different perspective. Instead of behaving like victims and seeing the conquest as yet another bad thing, something to be feared, reason to despair, yet another reason to blame others, Joshua and Caleb see the conquest in a positive light, emphasizing the goodness of the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. What a great opportunity God is giving us. Can you see how trust in God can radically alter your perspective? The vast majority of Israel failed to, tr to trust. They failed the trust test. 
and they disobeyed God. If we are going to realize God's vision of a holy church, we will need to have the attitude of Joshua and Caleb. Courageous, positive, encouraged, seeing the incredible good things that lay before us. The incredible opportunity that God has given us. Being sure that God is for us and not against us. As I see it, the work at hand right now for New Glasgow Christian Church is to discern that vision. But once we know what it is, we need to realize it with enthusiasm, confidence, and passion. Remembering the words of Joshua and Caleb, who said, the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Your word is given to us to teach us. In some ways, you give us examples not to follow. And sometimes you lay out wonderful examples of how we should live. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your involvement in humanity from day one. And even though, even though we rebelled and the story could have been a write-off, the story could have been a disaster. You did not adopt that mindset with us. You figured out a way to make something incredible out of it. You chose to send your son to undo, to overcome our rebellion so that you could build a kingdom, your kingdom, that would satisfy your purposes in the very first place of having a holy people set apart for you, set apart to worship you, set apart to glorify you. Lord, we want in on that story. <laughs> We want to be part of that story as a church. This church, Lord, wants to be part of your plan of redemption for the world. Help us, Lord, each one, to consider what it is you're saying to us in regards to that, that great plan of yours. Convict us in the areas in which we need to change. If we have a victim mentality, Lord, 
heal us and break us of it. And Lord, give us the courage and enthusiasm and passion of Joshua and Caleb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. Exit stage left. <laughs>